This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love music. We love what music does to us. And we love that everybody loves music. I've never met somebody who says, oh, I don't like music. I've never met that person. And one of the most influential people ever in the music business has a story you won't believe. And so, well, we wanted to tell it to you. And we love to do it sometimes in scripted form and with one of our narrators putting together a piece along with our really great writing crew and production crew and this man's life story. Well, you know his work. Wait till you hear his story. In the world of music, there are, of course, people besides musicians. And they can have as much influence as anyone who sings or plays an instrument. In this country and in our time, there is a hugely influential man whose name you are probably not familiar with, but whose work you know very well. So I'll tell you a story. That is the way Atlantic Records founder, Ahmed Erdogan, almost always began his conversations. We begin our story looking back at the last half century and the Atlantic sound which sprang from the small independent record label Ahmed Erdogan co-founded in 1947 single-handedly influencing the future direction of contemporary music. Born in Istanbul, Turkey, Ahmed's father became the Turkish ambassador to the United States when Ahmed was just 12. His older brother, Nesrey, introduced Ahmed to jazz and black music when he was only seven. So the move to America was a dream come true. Here's Ahmed. I had never been so happy in my life because I was going to the land of cowboys and Indians, gangsters, beautiful showgirls. I'd seen 42nd Street as a movie, you know, it was a fabulous thing with these great girls dancing and everything. And of course, the greatest thing, the land of jazz. Immediately upon arrival, Amit went looking for the jazz for the America he and his brother had imagined. Here's Ahmet recalling the story of his search for Harlem jazz while only in the seventh grade. When I came to New York, I stayed with the Consul General of Turkey, and I heard that they'd seen a particular movie. And I said, I want to see that movie. And they said, well, we've seen that movie, but I, we'll drop you there. We'll go see another movie that's up the street and then we'll pick you up after the movie's over. I said, great. So they took me to this movie house. Five minutes later, I hailed the first cab. I said, take me to Harlem. Cab driver says, where to in Harlem? I said, I didn't know where to because I thought Harlem was a place where you just go there and everybody is having fun in the streets. I said, no, no. You gotta know. I said, well, I wanna go, you know, someplace where there's some real good music and everything, you know. So it took me to a place called the Plantation Club. The band was Hot Lips Page. And he was amazed that I knew some of his songs and so forth. And he said, it's terrific. He said, what college do you go to? I was in seventh grade, you know. So I said, oh, I'm going to Harvard, you know. So I said, oh, okay. So he says, he said, well, go sit over there. He says, says uh, 
I sent one of the girls to sit with you. So this beautiful chorus girl goes, you know how we order some wine and so on. And they did the whole show. Wait a minute. What about the guys who were supposed to pick him up at the movie? I'd forgotten about that. The show was fabulous. Beautiful girls and dancing with her. And the band was fabulous. And you know, play jazz. And then we'll say it's for the second show. And then the second show's over, and this girl takes me to a rent party. And James B. Johnson is playing the piano. They got all kinds of food going back and forth, and I'm drinking scotch and sodas, you know. And I had met Sidney Bechet through my brother. He was there. I mean, he said, what are you doing here? I said, well, just, she says, what are you drinking? I said, scotch and soda. He said, you're too young to drink. She grabs out of my hand. He says, here, smoke this. <laughs> so around 6.30, this girl said, what do you want to do? I said, I better go home. <laughs> she says, don't you want to hang out? I said, no, no. <laughs> so boom, I go have a taxi. And apparently, the whole New York police force is looking for me. I mean, they've called my father, my mother goes out of her mind. I've disappeared. <laughs> they take me with guards on the train with me. I go back. That's the only time in my life my father saw me. He gave me a slap across the face. It's the only time he ever hit me because he was so angry. Well, I, you know, but uh, it was impossible to explain to, to my parents or to anybody that I love jazz, so, you know, it was all for the love of jazz. I wasn't, you know, but I had to get, to get there. This is Lee Habib, and my goodness, Ahmed Ertigan got there all right. And when we come back, you're going to hear more of this impresario story and the love of music that animated this man. And again, where artists are today without men like this, without guys scouring the planet to make artists be all they can be, coach them, work with them in the studio, bring them along. In the end, Ahmed Ertigan was an A&R guy to the core. More about this great man after these messages. is Our American Stories, and we continue with the life story of Ahmet Ertigan, a man you may have never heard of, but my goodness, 
Thank goodness for his love of music, which pushed him to discover some of the great artists of the 20th century. Let's continue with his story. I love jazz, so, you know, it was all for the love of jazz. I wasn't, you know, but I had to get to get there. It was that love which drove Amit to spend countless hours digging through old vinyl, eventually acquiring 25,000 records, the largest collection of jazz and blues in the world, which he had amassed by going door to door through ghettos and hanging out in black record shops. The Erdogan brothers made history when Ahmet was just 17. Here's Ahmet. In 1940, my brother and I had the first integrated jazz concerts ever given in Washington. We broke the color line in the sense that we had mixed bands and mixed audience. These concerts featured people like Ella Fitzgerald and Duke Ellington. The police would often be called to the embassy and would be dumbfounded to see blacks dining with whites. This wasn't the only time Ahmet had run-ins with the police. In Annapolis, I was going to college. I was 17 years old, and I went to hear a band in a black club in Annapolis, and they arrested me when I came out. I asked the judge, what law did I break? He said, you broke the Jim Crow law. I said, is that written down anywhere? He said, no, but everybody understands that. He looked at my name and said, I guess you're a foreigner. that uh, You don't understand what our laws are. I said, I don't consider that a law because it's not written anywhere. Then, in 1947, Ahmet opened Atlantic with Herb Abramson. Here's Ahmet. I was intent on starting a label. So I talked my dentist at the time, I talked him into mortgaging his house and investing $10,000. Amit recruited Tom Dowd, a young genius engineer and nuclear physicist who turned his skills producing atomic bombs for the Manhattan Project to engineering records. Amit chose staff for Atlantic the same way he chose artists. He listened, he trusted his gut, and he showed unerring good judgment pushing back the desks at night Amit would record in a tiny one-bedroom broken-down Manhattan apartment with a creaking floor and a sloping ceiling here's Billboard music critic turned Atlantic team member Jerry Wexler that's where I got some back trouble that lasted me for several decades and after the session broke down the desks would move back and it became an, it became an office again from the start Ahmet had a vision of what he wanted to put out on Atlantic. Here's the sort of record we need to make, he once said. There's a black man living in the outskirts of Louisiana. He works hard for his money. He has to be tight with a dollar. One morning, he hears a song on the radio. It's urgent, bluesy, authentic, and irresistible. He can't live without this record. He drops everything jumps in his pickup and drives 25 miles to the first record store he finds. We can make that kind of music, we can make it in the business. Because music publishers were not eager, as Ahmet said, to provide material to a hole-in-the-wall company called Atlantic, he began writing songs himself. We had to find some R&B material and put them into a funky groove. 
mama say, we'll have a good time anyway, you know. So that's why I started to write songs for them, you know, because you couldn't just go to a music publisher and find material. They didn't have any songs for them, so we had to make up those songs. In a recording booth located in a Times Square arcade, Amit would make a vinyl demo of a song that he would then play for the artist in the studio. Using the pseudonym Nugetra, his last name spelled backwards so he would not embarrass his family. Here's Amit. In the very early days of Atlantic, I would really thought of this thing as a passing thing. I mean, you know, I was still going to college. I started this label. But I thought that eventually I'd become a civil servant in Turkey like my father and grandfather and so on. And I thought, well, if I ever got involved in politics, maybe it wouldn't be good for me. Somebody found out I'd written a song called I Want to Rock You All Night or something <laughs> like that. Amit wrote more than 66 songs, many of them hits, including Ray Charles' Mess Around. Here's Amit performing Mess Around for Ray while Ray plays piano. Here's Ray performing it. Now this band's gonna play from nine to one. Everybody here's gonna have some fun doing the mess around. Ah, doing the mess around. Amit also wrote the Clover's hit Fool, 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 which would later be recorded by Elvis Presley. Here's Amit on writing for the Clovers. So when I got the Clovers, I said, well, I can't get a song. So I forced them to record this song. miracle happened. I was never in my life so amazed. All I could hear was this song blaring out of all of these music shops. I mean, the Clovers did not want to sing it, you know. It was forcing soul on the people, you know. I can't forget you, darling. Dude. Left out in the cold. Dude. I guess I still love you and will always be the same. The definitive story of their time together, which both Amit and Herb loved to tell, concerned the night in New Orleans when they went to find an unknown genius named Professor Longhair, who was playing in a joint across the river where no taxi driver would take them. Their cabbie dropped them off in the middle of a field. After walking a mile in the darkness, they saw a brightly lit house in the middle of town, so full of people that they seemed to be falling out of the windows as music blared. Talking their way past the guy at the door, who assumed they were cops, the pair made their way inside. Out came Professor Longhair, who played a piano with an attached drumhead that he would hit with his right foot. As people danced, Amit and Herb could barely contain themselves. An utterly primitive, completely original artist was making a kind of music they had never heard before. Rushing up to Longhair after his set was over, they told him just how much they wanted to sign him to Atlantic. I'm terribly sorry, said Longhair. I signed with Mercury last week. In Amit's version of the story, the pianist then added, but I signed with them as Roland Bird. With you, I can be Professor Longhair. In 1956, Atlantic had their greatest signing to date, the raw and unequal talent of Ray Charles. 
Here's Ahmed. I was in front of the building where our office was. I ran to Dave Brubeck and he said, what's happening? What's new? I said, you want to hear something new? It was like six o'clock at night or seven. Nobody was in the office. So I went up, unlocked the door, took him to my office, and I played him some Ray Charles, you know, piano doodlings and so forth, you know. He said, my God, that is a fabulous player. Fabulous player. Who is that? I said, that's Ray Charles. He said, I never heard of him, you know. Then in 1967, Amit signed Aretha Franklin. Here's Amit, Jerry Wexler, and Aretha discussing her experience at Atlantic. Jerry Wexler called me up and told me we had a good chance to sign up Aretha Franklin. I said, Aretha Franklin? Now, now you didn't have huge hits mm-hmm. at Columbia. No. But, but you had a wonderful career there. I did. You made some great records Thank there. you. Great records are not always great hits, mm. but there were mm. great records. At Columbia, at the time, Goddard Lieberson was the president, and, yes. and to me, he was just a name sitting somewhere in a big office. I never even met him, I don't think. Yes. But when I got to Atlantic, you and Jerry would come down to the studios, you would roll your sleeves up, we would get in there and laugh. I just remember we had a romping, stomping good time. Here's Jerry italicizing Aretha's point. I'd like to point out that Atlantic Records is the only major record company for which the owners actually made records were line producers in the studio making records. During this period, those in charge of Atlantic began to realize that their target audience was no longer rural and black. Rather, it was teenage and white. To put it another way, the blues had a baby, and they called it rock and roll. And when we come back, more on the life story of one of the great music men of the 20th century, a man who in the end loved to do just one thing, find great artists, promote them, and protect them. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love great stories about music, sports, love, death, business, American history, just about everything. But one of our favorite subjects, generosity, and the generous things Americans do for each other and for the world. Which brings us to our sweet charity series with our partners of the Philanthropy Roundtable, the nation's leader in fostering excellence in generosity protecting philanthropic freedoms, and assisting givers in achieving their goals. And the host of the series is none other than Carl Zinsmeister, their head of publications, and a guy as eclectic as the stories you'll hear in this series. Carl has authored 11 books, including The Almanac of American Philanthropy, and two from his on-the-ground reporting during the Iraq War. He also lives on a houseboat 
which more than anything should tell you that you're in for a treat. Take it away, Carl. Osceola McCarty's life had a raw beginning. She was conceived when her mother was raped on a wooded path in rural Mississippi. Osceola was raised in Hattiesburg by her grandmother and aunt, who cleaned houses, cooked, and took in laundry. As a child, Osceola would come home from elementary school in iron clothes, stashing the money she earned in her doll buggy. The three women relied completely on each other, and when the aunt returned from a hospitalization unable to walk, Osceola dropped out of sixth grade to care for her and took up her work as a washerwoman. She never returned to school. Work became the great good of her life, explained one person who knew Osceola. She gave herself over to it with abandon. Here is McCarty speaking in her own words toward the end of her life. Plenty of work to do. I worked all night sometime and all day, and then the next day. I knew there were people who didn't have to work as hard as I did, McCarty once said, but it didn't make me feel sad. I loved to work, and when you love to do anything, those things don't bother you. I had goals I was working toward. And hers was not a standard-issue job. McCarty scrubbed her laundry by hand on a rub board, then boiled it in a pot and hung each piece on a line to dry. Here she describes the tools of her trade. Okay, time wash pot, you know, in a tin tub, and rub the clothes with a rubber board, and throw them in the pot and boil them, arrange them, come to the line, hang them up, or we starch them. She did try an automatic washer and dryer in the 1960s, but found that, quote, the washing machine didn't rinse enough and the dryer turned the whites yellow. That wasn't good enough to meet her high standards, so the machine was almost immediately retired and she went back to her made-right scrub board, her boiling pot, and 100 feet of open-air clothesline. Osceola McCarty stuck with this extraordinary work ethic right up to her retirement at age 86. Hard work gives your life meaning, she stated. Everyone needs to work hard at something to feel good about themselves. Every job can be done well, and every day has its satisfactions. If you want to feel proud of yourself, you've got to do things you can be proud of. McCarty's shirt laundering didn't bring in much money. We didn't charge much. Sometimes it'd be two dollars, sometimes a dollar and a half. But she was frugal. And she was a saver right from the beginning when she started working at age eight. As the money pooled up in her doll buggy, the very young girl took action. She explained, quote, I went to the bank and deposited. Didn't know how to do it. Went there myself. Didn't tell mama and them I was going. She went on to explain, I commenced to save money. I never would take any of it out. I just put it in. It's not the ones that make the big money, but the ones who know how to save who get ahead. You've got to leave it alone long enough for it to increase. These sturdy habits ran together to produce Osceola McCarty's final secret. It was one that made many Americans very proud of her. When she retired in 1995, her hands painfully swollen with arthritis, this washerwoman, who had been paid in little piles of coins and single-dollar bills her entire life, had $280,000 in the bank. Even more startling, she decided to give most of it away, and not as a bequest, but immediately. Setting aside just enough to live on, McCarty donated $150,000 to the University of Southern Mississippi to fund scholarships for worthy but needy students seeking the education that she never had. 
when they found out what she had done, over 600 men and women in Hattiesburg and beyond made donations that more than tripled her original endowment. The first beneficiary of a McCarty scholarship was a Hattiesburg girl named Stephanie Bullock. She was president of her senior class and had supportive parents, but also a twin brother and not enough family income to send them both to college. With her scholarship, Bullock enrolled at Southern Miss and promptly adopted McCarty as a surrogate grandmother. The university has presented several full-tuition McCarty scholarships every year since then. In addition to helping students, McCarty offered other Americans powerful inspiration that giving is something anyone can do. You know, some people didn't give nothing. I was a little washerwoman. Everybody else ought to be able to do it themselves. In addition to enjoying the dignity of work, McCarty's satisfactions were the timeless ones. Faith in God, family closeness, and love of locale. One friend described McCarty's faith as as simple as the Sermon on the Mount and as difficult to practice. McCarty once told an interviewer, I start each day on my knees saying the Lord's Prayer. You have to accept God the best way you know how, and then He'll show Himself to you. And the more you serve Him, the more able you are to serve Him. Some people make a lot of noise about what's wrong with the world, and they are usually blaming somebody else. I think people who don't like the way things are need to look at themselves first. They need to get right with God and change their own ways. If everybody did that, we'd be all right. Once a journalist from People magazine asked McCarty why she didn't spend the money she'd saved on herself. She answered with a smile that, thanks to the pleasure that comes from helping others, quote, I am spending it on myself. My only regret, she said, is that I didn't have more to give. Osceola McCarty knew she didn't have to save the whole world. She just cast down her buckets and fixed what was at hand, in her own backyard. I can't do everything, she explained, but I can do something to help somebody, and what I can do, I will do. And she learned that generosity is its own reward. I feel blessed, and whatever I do, I do it from my heart. And they all seem like they appreciate it. And that's the reason I believe I'm blessed. And there you have it, another great story from Carl Zinsmeister, who heads the publications area over at the Philanthropy Roundtable. And he's also the author of The Almanac of American Philanthropy. And what a terrific what a terrific set of stories in that book. You just can't believe the number and the range. And again, it's everything from the highest net worth folks. We heard the story of Terry Kohler, who's a, a multimillionaire. Uh, and you just heard the story of a woman who was ironing shirts for a dollar and two dollars at a time and somehow managed to scrape together. Well, it's just unbelievable in the end when you look at these numbers. She donates 150000 to a university. And even better that folks triple that amount when they hear her story. And she put it best. As simple as Sermon on the Mount and as hard to practice is what she did. And she started on her knees. And it's a great way to start your day if you've ever tried it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, our sweet charity series from the folks at the Philanthropy Roundtable, the nation's leader in fostering excellence and generosity, protecting philanthropic freedoms, and assisting givers in achieving their goals. And you can go to our Sweet Charity series and hear all of them by going to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. 
More after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and what a story you have here, folks. And we love bringing you stories about men who you should know, but probably don't, and you certainly know his work, and that is Ahmed Ertegen. And we're going to continue where we left off with his love of black music and his desire to bring that music to the public. And by the way, in addition to this story, there's another story I would urge you all to catch. If you have Netflix... Get the documentary Muscle Shoals, because there's another story there about Rick Hall. And it's the merging of white and black culture, white and black musicians in a little town in Alabama. Again, that's Muscle Shoals. And so much of the great, great recording of American black music happened there. And of course, one of the men behind that is Ahmad Ertigan. And we picked that story up where we left off. Atlantic in the 80s had become a very different place. The independent record company he started was now part of a global music industry, grossing over $5 billion, nearly twice that of the movie industry. Amit, now in his 60s, never lost his ear for talent. Here's Phil Collins and Amit. As well as being a friend, you're also this person that... I had grown up admiring and, and, and eventually got to know and eventually grew to love this person. And you were there you were saying, you must make this record and anything you can do to help me make it, you will do. And I went away like from that meeting just like feeling 10 feet tall because obviously I was brand new. The most fun is when you sit in a studio and you suddenly hear magic happening. In other words, you hear a sound and you say, oh my gosh, this is something that the general public cannot deny. I got a copy of that record before it came out. I remember very well because I started to play that as an example of what a hit record sounds like to people who would bring me a record saying, listen to this record. And they play what they thought was a great record. I said, I said, well, that's pretty good. Now listen to this record. And they would say, wow, what is that? Right? And it was, I said, that's a hit record. Although much has changed, success still comes down to the quality of a song that people want to hear again so badly that they will happily pay for the privilege. Better than anyone, 
Ahmet Erdogan understood that need, having experienced it himself from the time he was a child. Ahmet was fond of saying, the best way to predict the future is to make it. And make it he did. He helped create the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1983 for many reasons, not the least of which was that half the people he loved most in the world could be in it. Times change, and so does music. But passion for music and the ability to spot talent has not changed for Ahmet. Here's Kid Rock and Ahmet. I just signed with Atlantic. And they booked me at some gig with all these Hollywood people. We're coming, you know, one of those gigs where everybody doesn't care who's playing. And Ahmet stood in the front and, and watched me. He was doing his show. Party. At a party, right? You're the only one that watched me and play. I tell you. It wasn't a rock and roll show. It was a rock and roll experience. Come on, y'all, and tell me what's my name. And I tell you, the crowd witnessed something that they had never seen before. A little louder. He was doing everything. Piano, drums, guitar, boom, boom, rapping, singing ballads. I just stood there. My mouth opened. <laughs> well, this man is something else. And he is something else. And my first manager, man, I said, you're going to be bigger than Elvis Presley. You're, you are something else. Uh, and he was unknown then. I like you, too. <laughs> Thank you. It's most interesting when you have a vision of an artist achieving a certain kind of musical climax on a record. It's a big payoff for people who love being involved in the creation of it. That's been my biggest driving force. He seems like one of the only people that really just loves music. Everybody else wants to, how are we going to market this record and where are we going to put it out and this, that, and the other. He's like, yeah, man, turn it up. That Amit died December 14th, 2006, at age 83 from a fall suffered backstage at a Rolling Stones concert, is an ending too perfect for any self-respecting Hollywood screenwriter to have written. But that's the story, as only Amit could have told it. Here's Amit. The soul of jazz is blues, and the soul of rhythm and blues is blues. So blues is really the fountainhead of all these kinds of music. You know, we make all these artificial distinctions. In my mind, it's really black American music and the white imitation thereof. Georgia, Woo. Georgia, the The important thing, I, th I think, is that when my brother and I were young kids and we first came to America, we were great jazz fans. And we loved American music, black American music. At a time when black singers and black musicians were not generally helped by society in America. We 
tried and were able not only to help them, but to build something ourselves. Are you really going to make me cry? A label which devoted a lot of its energy to jazz and blues and rock and roll. That's what I'm talking about. There is a point at which all this music comes together. The blues, the music of the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and 50s. The music that Louis Armstrong heard when he was growing up. And that enabled him to express so much feeling in his music. All of that was part of something that Nesri and I felt and, and that Somehow, against all odds, we were able to make something out of it, and I'm proud of that. But I'm most proud of the artists that helped us do that. The real reason Amit will be remembered is because by dedicating his life to music, Amit Erdogan gave people all over the world, many of whom still do not know his name, the soundtrack of their lives. And there you have it, folks. It doesn't get much better than that. A story about a man you should have known your whole life. I bumped into his life story at a young age. I was lucky enough to be in a few clubs where he was just sitting there listening to the local talent. And anywhere you popped up, if you were a music fan in New York City during the 50s, 60s, 70s, or 80s, Ahmed Ertigan in all likelihood, was in the club himself somewhere that night if he was in New York because he didn't leave this to other people. He didn't see this as work that was beneath him to go to a, to go to a club and catch a new act. He was always excited, loved the latest trends. And, well, I want to end this hour where it all began for Ahmed Ertigan in the end, and that's with the career of Ray Charles. And some of the early recordings are some of the best there's some of the simplest, starkest. There's some blues element. There's some jazz element. Let's take a listen to a classic old Ray Charles, Chestnut, Losing Hand. I gamble on your love, baby. And got a losing hand. I gamble on your love, baby Yes, and got a losing hand Your ways keep changing Like the shifting desert sand This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And to listen to all of our best stuff, Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Let's close things out again with Ray Charles. While I was playing fair, baby, you played a cheat. I know you didn't care But I love you just the same 
our American stories and now it's time for another this day in history segment some days we have one some days we have none and some days we have a couple and on this particular day we do and as always our this day in history is brought to us by Hillsdale College the best place in America to study history the Constitution liberal arts as liberal arts was meant to be all the finer things in life and if you can't get to Hillsdale Hillsdale will get to you through their online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu, and their C.S. Lewis course is astoundingly good. Watch it with your family. You can't get a course like this almost anywhere in the country, and again, it's absolutely free. Go to hillsdale.edu. Today we're featuring a man who has been described as the greatest reformer in history. Now, this is not an American story, but we believe that it so affected American reformers that indeed it becomes an American story. His legacy, this man you're about to hear, influenced the lives of kings and presidents, touched the poor and the downtrodden in nations everywhere. Two hundred years ago, England was the world's greatest superpower. It was also the world's greatest slave trader. Ships by the hundreds sailed from Britain's shores for the coast of West Africa, where crews employed brutal methods, capturing and enslaving their human cargo for the fields and plantations of the New World. Not only was this practice highly profitable, it was national policy. Planners and traders leveraged their tremendous wealth and exercised astounding influence in Parliament. Few voices were brave enough to rise in protest. Anyone hoping to abolish the slave trade would need intelligence, grace, influential friends, the gift of oration, and most of all, faith. It would take years of tireless, thankless, and failed efforts to wake a nation's passion for freedom and justice. But 200 years ago, one man did indeed stand up against this evil and started a movement that would change the world. That man was William Wilberforce. Surely it is time for the fat fellow and his friends opposite to make way for others who consider the good of their country of greater moment than their own personal interest. Born in 1759 in the city of Hull, England, Wilberforce was small, sickly, and frail. His physical condition didn't improve much with adulthood, 
Later, the five-foot, two-inch Wilberforce would be described as all soul and no body. But he did develop a powerful intellect and had an uncommonly beautiful voice that was as charming as it was convincing. Less than one in four Americans are loyal. If he called that half, I'd hate to be his wife and share half his bed. <laughs> he attended the University of Cambridge in 1776, where he met William Pitt, who would become his lifelong friend and, at 24 years of age, the youngest prime minister in British history. They worked together for years to help end the slave trade. And although Pitt was overwhelmed by the war against Napoleon's France, Wilberforce had in William Pitt no greater friend to ending the slave trade. At the age of 21, Wilberforce ran for election in the House of Commons and won. Wilberforce later confessed that his early political aim was not to serve others. Wilberforce wrote, The first years I was in Parliament, I did nothing, nothing that is to any purpose. My own distinction was my darling object. All that changed in 1785 when Wilberforce wrote William Pitt, saying he was in the midst of a spiritual transformation, an ongoing process that he would later refer to as his great change. He gained a new humility and a genuine heart for the poor and suffering. He was full of joy and energy and grace. There was no harshness or judgment in him. Everyone in society angled to have him at their parties, though he usually declined. But most everyone saw the love of Christ in him, which is impossible to fake. You read my letter? The man who wrote that letter was not you. It was written by some wild preacher man that has gotten into your head. No. Wilberforce explained that he was praying for God to reveal his calling to him. God, you said you were going to ask God whether you should take up politics or religion. You're always too direct, Billy. I urgently need to know where your heart lies, Wilbur. What's urgent? Pitt urged him to remain in politics. I want you beside me, Wilbur, all the way. Shortly after this, Pitt set up a secret meeting between abolitionists and Wilberforce. These are for the legs. The abolitionist leader, Thomas Clarkson, detailed what it was to be a newly captured slave. This is for the neck. Works like so. Mr. Wilberforce, we understand you're having problems choosing whether to do the work of God or the work of a political activist. We humbly suggest that you can do both. And when we come back, more of this remarkable life story. William Wilberforce, who died on this day in history in 1833. This is Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Story, the life of William Wilberforce. We pick up where we left off. Wilberforce just attended an abolitionist meeting with his friend, William Pitt. You planned this. I've seen the literature you've been reading. You stooped to searching through my desk? Sir William Dolben told me you'd asked to be shown round the East India docks. So, you would use my private concerns for your own political ends? Yes, exactly that. Here's Pitt making another appeal to Wilberforce. Surely the principles of Christianity lead to action as well as meditation. Oh, excellent point. Allow me to meditate on it before I decide on any action. Just think about this, Wilbur. The slave trade has 300 MPs in its pocket. It would be just you against them. But you could do it. You would do it. And so he made the decision to visit an old family friend for advice. This friend was John Newton, a former white slave turned captain of his own slave ship. Newton was known for his profanity and violence until he too experienced the heart change because of his conversion. Newton was now a 60-year-old pastor who penned the most famous hymn in history. It's called Amazing Grace. Hello, Mr. Newton. It's me, William. Wilberforce walked to Charles Square in London where Newton lived, and he couldn't summon up the courage to knock on the door. He walked around the square once and twice and finally knocked on the door. So, what do you want with the old preacher? I'm here to seek your advice. Pitt has asked me to take them on. The slavers. I'm the last person you should come to for advice. I can't even say the name of any of my ships without being back on board them in my head. All I know is 20,000 slaves live with me in this little church. There's still blood on my hands. Will you help me, John? I can't help you. But do it, Wilbur. Do it. Take them on. Throw their dirty, filthy ships out of the water. The planters, sugar barons, Alderman Sugarcane, the Lord Mayor of London, Liverpool, Boston, Bristol, New York, all their streets running with blood, dysentery, puke. You won't come away from those streets clean, Wilbur. You'll get filthy with it, you'll dream it, see it in broad daylight, but do it. God's sake. Wilberforce returned to Parliament a changed man. He was ready for his mission. On October 28, 1787, Wilberforce penned these memorable lines in his diary. God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. The word manners meaning the moral fiber of a nation which is to say a kind of social reform against rampant immorality and vice. You see, 
Life in Wilberforce's day was brutal, decadent, violent, and vulgar. Societal evils were many and horrific. Epidemic alcoholism, child prostitution, child labor, frequent public executions for petty crimes, and unspeakable public cruelty to animals. All of these were far more visible than slavery. Wilberforce knew that if society was to be brought into line with the abolition of slavery and the commandments of God, it would need to begin with the reformation of manners. Knowing that success in the small things would eventually lead to success in greater things. Because of this, Wilberforce practically invented what we now know as social conscience. Excuse me, sir. Do you have a penny for a pilot? Later that year, Wilberforce brought a motion to the House of Commons for the abolition of the slave trade. It is with a heavy heart that I bring to the attention of this house a trade which degrades men to the level of brutes and insults the highest qualities of our common nature. I am speaking of the slave trade. It would be 20 long years, 20 years filled with frustration, duplicity, and disappointment before he would carry the House of Commons and the House of Lords in putting abolition into law. In fact, due to a severe illness from which he nearly died, it would take Wilberforce two years just to bring his first parliamentary speech against the slave trade. For three and a half hours, he detailed its brutal realities, presenting for many their first glimpse into slavery's gruesome practices. He also appealed to those whose livelihood depended on the riches of the slave trade. On one occasion, while taking an opulent sail down the harbor, Wilberforce appeared on the deck of a docked slave vessel, surprising the passing ship full of wealthy men and women with the realities of the slave trade. This trip wasn't purely arranged to reward those MPs who have supported me in the past year, nor am I the only sponsor. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a slave ship, the Madagascar. It has just returned from the Indies, where it delivered 200 men, women and children to Jamaica. When it left Africa, there were 600 on board. The rest died of disease or despair. That smell is the smell of death. Slow, painful death. Breathe it in. Breathe it deeply. Take those handkerchiefs away from your noses. There now. Remember that smell. Remember the Madagascar. Remember that God made men equal. Parliament responded with typical delay tactics. In the midst of the political chicanery, the great Methodist reformer and preacher to the American colonies, John Wesley, wrote Wilberforce a letter of encouragement and support. 
Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them stronger than God? It was the last letter Wesley ever wrote. He died a week later. But his words proved true, as Wilberforce faithfully endured 13 more frustrating years of consecutive defeats presenting his bill to the House. And still, after all the badges, the petitions, all the speeches and the bills, ships full of human souls in chains sail around the world as cargo! Then, in 1806, maritime lawyer and abolitionist James Stephen, newly back from the Indies, shared this story with Wilberforce and his friends. On every island now there are rebellions, Haiti, is in the hands of slaves, and the slaves are anxious, they're impatient for their freedom. They hear about your work here. I, uh, I saw a woman and her child being beaten in a coffee field. And afterwards I heard the woman tell her daughter that someone was coming across the sea to save them. She said it was King Wilberforce. So this time, gentlemen, we must not fail them. Stephen suggested a change in tactics. If we go to Parliament with this evidence, there'll be sympathy, there'll be concern, but it'll be just the same as every other time. Have you come back to preach hopelessness? No. No, I've, I've had an idea. In my law books, I, I think I might have stumbled across something, and I want to propose it as a strategy. Nosus decipia. It's Latin. Loosely translated, it means... We cheat. And when we come back, the concluding segment in the life of William Wilberforce, who died on July 29th, 1833. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This day in history, as always, brought to us by Hillsdale College. And here's the final installment of the story of William Wilberforce. Wilberforce and fellow abolitionist Thomas Clarkson mm. took their idea in secret to Prime Minister Pitt. Oh, for God's sakes, what is it? 80% of all slave ships sailing to the Indies are flying the neutral American flag prevent them from being boarded by privateers. If we pass a law removing that protection, no shipowner will dare allow his vessel make the journey. This will only apply to French ships, not British. And that's the beauty of it. Once any ship raises the American flag, by law it is neither French nor British. So our slave ships will be just as liable to seizure as French ones. 
The privateers won't care whose booty they're taking as long as they're operating within the law. Without the protection of neutral flags, 80% of the British slave trade will be finished overnight. Dear God. Anti-French bill, which is also anti-slavery. I don't know why I didn't think of this any sooner. But they needed Pitt's help. Oh, but we can't let anyone know that we're behind this. We need you to instruct someone to put this bill forward who's seen as a patriot. We don't want any fuss. We just need someone really, really... boring. Pitt obliged. My proposition is that all the ships flying the American flag liable to search and seizure, but, an end to but one of the slavery-supporting parliamentarians began to smell what the abolitionists were cooking. Mr. Speaker, I do believe the abolitionists are coming at us at a sidewind. Sidewind? What kind of sidewind? Uh, I'm not sure what kind of sidewind, I just know that there's something going on. He rushed out of the house and quickly tried to gather what was an unusually large number of missing votes. Many were straggling in the hallways, but most all of them were simply gone. Everybody's at the races in Epsom. They were given free tickets. I saved one for you, a free gift from William Wilberforce. Disguised as an anti-French bill, the Foreign Slave Trade Act quickly passed with the effect of eliminating two-thirds of the British slave trade. On the Home and Foreign Slave Trade Act, then, after hours of debate that lasted into the pre-dawn hours of February 24th, 1807, the ruling on a resolution to end the slave trade in all of Britain was announced at four in the morning. Nose to the left, 16. Eyes to the right, 283. of the slave trade to be passed. It was a moment like, unlike any other in British history. The House of Commons rose as one man and applauded for several minutes on end Wilberforce. And he sat there with the tears streaming down his face. The historian G.M. Trevelyan has said, speaking of the abolition of the slave trade, that it was one of the turning events in the history of the world. When people speak of great men, they think of men like Napoleon, men of violence. Rarely do they think of peaceful men. But contrast the reception they'll receive when they return home from their battles. Napoleon will arrive in pomp and in power, a man who's achieved the very summit of earthly ambition. And yet his dreams will be haunted by the oppressions of war. William Wilberforce, however, will return to his family, lay his head on his pillow, and remember the slave trade is no more. 
More than two decades after the Foreign Slave Trade Act was passed, on July 26, 1833, word from London was rushed to Wilberforce as he lay gravely ill. The House of Commons had cast the decisive vote of victory to outlaw all slavery throughout its empire. 800,000 slaves were freed. Three days later, William Wilberforce died and was buried in Westminster Abbey. Free blacks in New York City wrote a formal eulogy and had it delivered to England. Harriet Beecher Stowe praised Wilberforce in the pages of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Frederick Douglass invoked his memory in many speeches. Wilberforce's victory inspired and cajoled the rest of the European powers and America itself to do the same. Wilberforce speaks to us so powerfully because he is probably the best example we have of someone who carried his faith into the public square to write a great human rights abuse. And he is one of a, a great tradition that we're familiar with here in America. One thinks of Martin Luther King Jr. and his passionate pursuit of civil rights. Faith was the basis for Dr. King's pursuit of justice. The same is the case with Wilberforce. Like Dr. King, his faith was the source of first principles that inspired him on the fight to end first the slave trade and later slavery itself. In 1858, Lincoln noted that he had never allowed himself to forget that Wilberforce had led the fight against the slave trade in the British Empire. It's a fact, he said, that schoolboys know. Unfortunately, schoolboys and girls no longer know it. Perhaps he's become a victim of his own success, like a scientist who discovers the cure for an inoculation against a terrible disease. As the disease is eradicated and passes out of memory, so the scientist's name is likely to be forgotten. This is what seems to have happened to Wilberforce. What he accomplished, he accomplished so thoroughly and so successfully that we've completely taken it for granted. Wilberforce is the ultimate politician, perhaps the greatest politician who ever lived. He was as wise as a serpent and as gentle as a dove. He accomplished more as a legislator than anyone could ever hope to accomplish, and he did it from being principled to the core. But at the end of the day, he played to a constituency of one. Wilberforce follows no leader but the preacher in his hand. And it needs to be said that he did it with the very greatest humility, not with any sort of moralistic or triumphalist arrogance. He believed that he was a sinner, saved by God's grace. That belief could be seen in how he lived and how he treated his political opponents, with a disarming and quite extraordinary graciousness. Today, a little more than 200 years after Parliament cast its historic vote to outlaw the slave trade, the mission and movement of Wilberforce continues. Today, people of courage and conviction are putting their faith into action, taking a stand for the weakest and most vulnerable, those who have no voice and need our help, following the footsteps of this hero of humanity, William Wilberforce. And great job on that as always, Greg. And we tend to think of slavery only in the context of modern history, perhaps coinciding with the beginning of slavery in America. 
But the reality is that we do not even know when slavery began because it's an institution that's older than recorded history. The significance of the abolition of the British slave trade is that it was the turning point of the worldwide movement to eradicate slavery. It was the end of the British slave trade that spurred on the United States and other European powers to rid themselves of the brutal practice. This is Lee Habib. As always, this day in history brought to us by Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu to watch or listen to all of their great courses. The C.S. Lewis is terrific. And again, this is our American stories. This day in history, William Wilberforce died in 1833. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, the best place in America to study history, in fact, the best place in America to study all the things that matter in life, and that's philosophy, and that's the letters and arts, and the classic liberal arts education. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you. Go to hillsdale.edu. Their C.S. Lewis course which is online, is terrific. So is their Constitution course, and there's so much more there available to you and your family. In July of 1945, the USS Indianapolis received secret orders to deliver some cargo to Tinian Island in the Pacific. That cargo, well, that was about half of the world's supply of uranium-235 and other critical parts for the atomic bomb Little Boy. The Indianapolis delivered her precious cargo to the Tinian by July 26th, 14 minutes past midnight on July 30th. The Indianapolis was attacked by a Japanese submarine and rolled over 12 minutes later. Of her 1,196 crewmen, 300 went down with the ship. The rest, with very few lifeboats or life jackets, well, they were set adrift. And what they endured, the terrible struggle to survive... That was the basis for a remarkable scene in the movie Jaws. And if you recall, they're out in the, they're out in the ocean, they're hunting for that shark, and Richard Dreyfuss and, and Robert Shaw, who was playing that old sea captain, were comparing wounds, and they were trying to one-up each other in their many brushes with danger. And then came Robert Shaw with the ultimate fish story. Japanese submarine slammed two torpedoes into our side, Chief. He was coming back from the island of Tinian to Lady. Just delivered the bomb, the Hiroshima bomb. Eleven hundred men went into the water. Vessel went down in twelve minutes. Didn't see the first shark for about half an hour. Tiger, thirteen footer. You know, you know that when you're in the water, Chief. You tell by looking from the dorsal to the tail. What well, we didn't know was our bomb mission had been so secret. No distress signal had been sent. 
they didn't even list us overdue for a week. Very first light, Chief. Sharks come cruising. So we formed ourselves into tight groups. You know, it's kind of like old squares in a battle, like you see in a calendar, like the Battle of Waterloo, and the idea was... Shark comes the nearest man, that man, he start pounding and hollering and screaming. Sometimes the shark go away. Sometimes he wouldn't go away. Sometimes that shark, he looks right into you, right into your eyes. You know the thing about a shark, he's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eyes. When he comes at you, he doesn't seem to be living until he bites you. And those black eyes roll over white, and then... Oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red, and in spite of all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in, and they rip you to pieces. You know, by the end of that first dawn, lost a hundred men. I don't know how many sharks, maybe a thousand. I don't know how many men, the average six an hour. On Thursday morning, Chief, I bumped into a friend of mine, Herbie Robinson from Cleveland. Baseball player, Bosun's mate. I thought he was asleep. Reached over to wake him up. Bobbed up and down in the water, it was like a kind of top. Upended. Well, he'd been bitten in half below the waist. Noon the fifth day, Mr. Hooper, Lockheed Ventura. So she swung in low and he saw us to the young pilot, a lot younger than Mr. Hooper anyway. He saw us and he come in low and three hours later, a big fat PBY comes down and starts to pick us up. You know, that was the time I was most frightened, waiting for my turn. I'll never put on a life jacket again. So, 1,100 men went in the war. 316 men come out. The sharks took the rest. Anyway, we delivered the bomb. And I don't think anyone could do that like Robert Shaw. And it is the part of the movie that is, I think, the part that holds the whole thing together, that long soliloquy. Here's Edgar Harrell, a young U.S. Marine assigned to the Indianapolis, recounting that disaster. July the 16th, 
and I tell the Lord many things. I tell him that mom and dad back home, older sister to younger sister, and six younger brothers and a certain brunette that said that she would wait for me, but it was uh, had to be the providence of God that any survivor survived those four and a half, five days swimming with the sharks, of which I did. I was in a group of 80. By the third day at noon, there was only 17 of us. And when I was picked up at the end of four and a half days, there was one other, a Navy lieutenant and myself. So uh, I saw my shipmates disemboweled or the bottom torso torn off or a leg torn off by sharks, sharks, sharks. And then uh, uh, dehydration, boys drinking salt water and going crazy, and your buddy may be your enemy, and that he may think you're a Jap, or he may think that you've got a canteen of water hidden in your K-Park life jacket. He may take out his sheath knife and stab you, and uh, the blood, 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 and shark, shark, sharks. So your your buddy may become your enemy. And uh, then uh, um, 110 degree weather, and you're swimming constantly, bareheaded, and uh, you can imagine uh, the thirst. Your lips now are parched open, cracking, bleeding, and all that oil off of your clothing and the water and that and uh, you are desperate for water. And again, that was Edgar Harrell, a young U.S. Marine assigned to the Indianapolis, recounting that story. And my goodness, that was the thing about Robert Shaw's version, how accurate it was. By the way, no need to, to fudge on this one. No need to make it worse. You don't have to. U.S. Naval Intelligence intercepted a message from the Japanese sub saying that it had sunk an American battleship along the Indianapolis route. But this was ignored as a ruse to lure American rescue forces into an ambush. On August 2nd, 1945, three and a half days after the sinking, an American aircraft spotted the Indianapolis survivors during a routine patrol. Seeing their fellow Americans attacked by sharks, another air crew disobeyed orders and landed their seaplane on the open ocean, taxiing to try to pick up lone survivors who were at most risk of being attacked. Several hours later, in darkness, the USS Doyle was the first vessel to arrive on the scene. Disregarding the danger of alerting the Japanese, the captain of the Doyle, future Secretary of the Navy, W. Graham Clater, pointed his largest searchlight into the night sky as a beacon for other rescue vessels. To most survivors, seeing that light was the first sign that help had come. The destroyers Helm, Madison, and Ralph Talbot along with three destroyer escorts, joined the rescue effort, which lasted until August 8. Of the Indianapolis' original 1,196-man crew, only 317 remained. Estimates of the number who died from shark attacks range from a few dozen to almost 150. It's impossible to know. But either way, the ordeal of the Indianapolis survivors remains the worst maritime disaster in U.S. naval history. And on this day on history, we memorialize, because you can't celebrate something like this, you can only memorialize the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. And again, as always, our This Day in History is brought to us by Hillsdale College. This is Lee Habib, and this is 
Our American Stories. 